Bible reading for this message is taken from James chapter 4 from verse 10 to chapter 5 verse 12. Why don't you take a moment and pause this video and go have a read uh, through those verses in your Bible and then come back and we'll carry on. So that's James chapter 4 from verse 10 all the way through to chapter 5 and verse 12. Of all the characters in the Bible who seem repugnant to us, Probably no one is more so than the self-righteous Pharisee in the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. Uh, this man stood and prayed in front of anyone who would listen. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the irony is that even as we condemn him, we can easily fall into that same self-righteous attitude. C.S. Lewis said that of all uh, sins that humans can commit, uh, pride might be the worst of all vices. Because it comes directly from hell, he says. It creeps into our religious life by the devil himself. He wants us to be secure in our chasteness and in our bravery or in our own self-control, and of course, in our own holiness and self-righteousness. Uh, Lewis would go on to point out uh, that, uh, that pride is something that has in fact replaced uh, vanity, and it's something that is incredibly tricky to put our finger onto. Uh, proud, pride is so diabolical because the proud person wants no praise from others. For why should they care what this rabble thinks or says about them? Why is it uh, that God detests pride so much? Why is it uh, that he can say, that James can say in 4 verse 6, uh, quoting from the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Is it not because God is trying to make us humble in order to make the moment possible where he can finally uh, break into our lives, break past our own self-righteousness, and help us to see our desperate need for him? Uh, Lewis would go on to say uh, that God is trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up into and are strutting around like the little idiots that we are. Uh, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. It's the comparison uh, that wells up within us in our own pride that makes us proud. Uh, the pleasure of being above the rest, uh, that is what pride is. And what we need to understand about this pride is that once that element of competition is gone, once it is removed, it is only at that point that our pride is taken away and removed from us. You see, James rightly understands that if we want to be a deeply transformed people, if we want to get to the hearts uh, and what's going on inside of our hearts, we have to think deeply and carefully about how the gospel transforms our pride, kills our pride, 
and what the gospel replaces it with. You see, sin is something that runs through all of us. Pride is something that runs through all of us. And not only does it run through all of us, pride runs through every single part of us. Pride has a way of featuring in every single area of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to consider three areas that pride features in heavily and that stop this uh, deep relationship, this transforming relationship uh, that God has brought us into, gets in the way of that. We're going to think about it under three headings, pride and our words, pride and our plans, and pride and our wealth. So firstly, James chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12 Brothers and sisters, he's going back to this tongue, keeping a tight rein on, on the tongue. That is true religion. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. There's something that being judgmental towards another does for us that makes us feel good about ourselves. Uh, judging, though, is a part of what James refers to as spiritual adultery. Judging is uh, like having an affair. It puts me up and it casts that other person down. It puts them down and raises me up into an exalted status while removing from them an exalted status. It, it helps me to uh, see all the things about me that are wonderful and great uh, while robbing a person of anything that could possibly be wonderful or great about, about them. Now James is not here talking about being discerning when he says do not judge one another, but we've got to be really careful about that because we could um, disguise our judgments under, uh, as though it were discernment. Uh, we must be careful not to use uh, something that appears to be good and righteous as a cover-up for sin. We need to carefully consider our words, carefully consider our thoughts, and carefully consider the hearts from where they come when we are speaking about others, to make sure that we are not slandering them, that we are not speaking against a brother or sister, and to ensure that we are not judging them in the name of discernment. So what is it that you are uh, watching out for? If you find that it's doing something for you that you enjoy, something that builds your pride, well, it's at that point that you're being judgmental. That, that's what you're watching out for. That competition with that other person where what you say to them, what you say about them, what you say to other people about them, if that is giving you uh, joy and pleasure and making you feel better about yourself, well, friends, that is pride. That is slandering, speaking against, or judging other people. When you see that motivation, and only when you see that motivation in yourself, when you speak about others, when you engage with others about someone else, when you see that motivation, then you will begin to discover the basis for repentance. And out of repentance, you will find the ability and the power to be less judgmental. 
You see, when we judge, we set ourselves over and against the law. So this is why this is such a terrible, terrible thing. It's why James cares so deeply about our words. Look at what he says. When you set yourself up as judges, second half of verse 11, you speak against the law and you judge it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you are sitting in judgment on it. Then he goes on and says, there's one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And maybe that's the best place to start. Who are you? Seriously, who are you to judge your neighbor? But what's more than that, look at what's going on beneath the surface. It's not just that you're judging your neighbor, it's actually that you're judging the law. You remember the law of liberty, uh, that perfect law that we're to look deeply into, like a person looking into a mirror that we're to dwell on, uh, that law that gives freedom, that provides liberty, uh, that law uh, who comes from the very mouth of God, of whom there is only one lawgiver and only one law, so that if you break one part of it, you break the whole thing. That's what we're talking about here. And, and here's the crazy thing. James is saying that when you slander somebody, when you judge somebody, when you speak against somebody, you're actually setting yourself up not against them, but against God's law itself. Remember David in Psalm 51? Against you only, Lord, have I sinned. That's what we're doing when we speak badly against other people. We're setting ourselves over and against the law, which means that we're actually setting ourselves over and against God, we're becoming judges of that law, and in actual fact, we're putting God in the dock. We're saying, God, you're not the judge. I'm the judge. You will answer to me. So we're no longer keeping the law, but we're standing in judgment and opposition against that law. I'm above the law. I know better than the law. Think about with Adam and Eve. The Lord said to them in the garden, do not eat from that tree, for when you eat of it, you will know good and evil. Uh, it wasn't that they would know about good and evil, it's that they would decide for themselves what was good and evil. They would make the choice. And that's exactly what's going on here. Now, you probably never thought to yourself, wow, my words are so powerful. My words actually say so much. But, but that's, that, this is where James has gotten to. And he traces it all back to pride. So verse 10 of chapter 4, we started there because God says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And James is now talking about the opposite of doing that. Doing this is not humbling yourself before the Lord. It's raising and exalting yourself up. It's using our words in prideful ways that in fact are shameful ways. There's one lawgiver and one judge. And what we need to understand in that question of who are you? Well, who is that lawgiver and who is that judge? He is the one who is able to save and destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? So friends, this is part of our speech. So let me ask you, what do your words about people show about the way that you are dealing with pride in your heart? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Pride and our plans, verses 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this city or that city and will spend a year, year there, will carry on business and make money. Here's the second big question uh, that James is going to ask. 
while you don't even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? So he says, who are you? Who do you think you are? And then he says, what do you think your life is? What do you think your life consists of? Now this might be one of the easiest passages in James to deal with at the moment, because who thought that 2020 was going to look the way that it did? We, this passage really resonates with us, where we said, hey, 2020, we were going to do this and we were going to do that. Well, guess what? You don't even know what is going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? And the nice thing is that James actually answers that question. He says, you're a mist. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And that's the thing about mist. I don't know if you ever noticed, like you're driving along and you drive into mist and then the mist is gone and you didn't even, you kind of forget. Like when was the last time you remember being in mist? And, and when you were in that mist, when do you remember that mist like just disappearing? It comes and it goes. And James says, actually, that is what your life is like. What is your life? Who are you? Your, your, your life is tiny and it's transitory and you actually have no control over it. Yet what James is dealing with here is the idol of presumption. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't have great and wonderful plans for each one of us, that he has great and wonderful plans for tomorrow, that he has hard and difficult plans and trials for each one of us that we have to count pure joy. We're reminded in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, that God's steadfast love never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning, and great is his faithfulness. But it's very easy to say those words and sing those words on a Sunday and make no reference to them the rest of the week. You see, that way of thinking about life, that God's steadfast love never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning, that is the framework by which we have to build our life and think about our plans. So we say them on, on Sunday, but the pride comes in on Monday Sunday night, in fact, when we start making our plans, when we start making our goals, this is what I'm going to do, this is my bucket list, this is what I want to accomplish, this is how much money I'm going to make. And we don't make any plans with the Lord in mind. Tomorrow uh, is my day. No, tomorrow is completely in the Lord's hands. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1, 16, verse 9, man makes his plans, but the Lord determines his steps. And so when a tiny and temporary person thinks that they control time and space, that person has moved into an incredibly dangerous place of pride and spiritual pride. So friends, beware of Sunday Christianity. Beware of singing how great is our God on Sunday and then going into Monday and move into an environment where God appears to be completely irrelevant, where his word just sits on the bookshelf. You have to make a decision. Either he governs the weak and the world, or else he is just nobody and little. So who is God to you when it comes to your plans? Does he govern the weak and the world, or is he a nobody and little? We need a special grace to wake up on Monday and see God's sovereign power in everything. 
Instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. Now, he's not saying, you know, if it's the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, and go around always saying, if it's the Lord's will. He's saying, uh, to, to echo Proverbs, yes, you might make plans, but the Lord's going to determine your steps. And so when you make those plans, does he feature? Is he a part of them? Uh, do you make those plans recognizing that if they come to fruition, he blessed them and made them happen? And if they don't, it was his hand that was against them, and he was doing that because he was somehow working things out toward your ultimate good, your ultimate treasure. Uh, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. She's saying, you know these, but it, and if you know it, but you don't do it, it's actually sin. As you try to live your life apart from God, apart from His sovereignty, and plan without Him, if you know the good thing that you ought to do, and you don't do it, well then it's sin. And so friends, here then is a warning against pride and presumption. Here though is a warning also to encourage the humble Christian who is day by day exercising dependence upon God and acting incredibly wisely. So there's a warning against being proud and presumptuous. There's a hope and encouragement for the one who is living this way and with this attitude towards God. And, and, and I want to say as well at this point, don't fear what you cannot control. And do not try to control what you fear. So much of pride and presumptuousness and having to have all our plans in place and having to be in control actually comes out of fear. You have nothing to fear if God is your Heavenly Father. And, and so don't try to control what you fear. Let Him control that. Let Him look after that. Live in this humble dependence, not this proud presumptuousness. Don't, don't, don't walk into the future thinking that God is irrelevant. Remember the Lord in all your plans. Psalm 37 verse 23 the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. And again, the psalmist in Psalm 22 and verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The third area that we see pride working itself out in is with our wealth. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that has come on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now just to be clear, uh, the Bible is not against wise Planning. It doesn't demonize it, but it also uh, doesn't turn it into an idol. Uh, the Bible also never demonizes a class of people. 
However, unlike the world, it also never idolizes a class of people. I think James is really expounding on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. James is saying, let me show you the outcome of the person who lays up treasure on earth but does not love God or people, who makes this world their ultimate reality, who makes this world their God. He says, firstly, verse 1, it's not good. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. He says it was for nothing that you did all that you did because in the end it rotted, it was eaten, and it has corroded. He then goes on and says that in actual facts, not only was it for nothing, but it testifies against you and it destroys you. Uh, the corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, wealth, when we serve it, actually has a way of destroying us. And there are countless stories that speak to this in our world that some of you will know personally. What's more is that your wealth, you have used it uh, not for justice but for injustice. Because you've hoarded your wealth, because you have spent it on your own desire and your own pleasure, think back James chapter 4, and what you do with your desires and for your pleasure, you have actually brought injustice into the world. Fifthly, your wages, they cry out against you. It's not that the, the workers cry out against you. The wages that you fail to pay the workers cry out against you. You held them back, you kept them, you hoarded them, and they now cry out against you. And what's more, not only do they testify and cry out against you, but the cries of those you have oppressed, well, they have now reached the ears of the Lord. Here then is pride in self-indulgence at the expense of others. And so you are guilty of condemning and murdering the innocent one who is not opposing you. Uh, that may have been the workers that James is mentioning here, but it also and equally might have been Jesus himself. The innocent one who came to save them, who came to rescue them, who wasn't opposing them, but they have in fact murdered him, putting him to death on the cross. So what James is saying is really twofold. He's speaking to those who are wealthy, and I think that there's an element where we actually all need to think of ourselves in that regard. You know, we tend to think, well, you know, 10 or 20,000, 100,000, a million rand more, then I'd be wealthy. Uh, and, and we always kind of go up that way. I said this before, we never go down that way. I think there's an element uh, where James is speaking to us uh, both as those who are wealthy and as those who are oppressed. So let's just first listen with the, with, the, with the ear of the wealthy. Let's put ourselves into their shoes and consider ourselves wealthy for a few moments. To hoard money for yourself is an incredibly dangerous thing spiritually. It kills off your spiritual faculties because it makes you fairly independent, self-sufficient, arrogant, and full of pride because look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I have. Instead of hoarding, which leads to exploiting and luxuriating and even persecuting, uh, which sends us down into this decline, it, James is calling for us to get into the habit of looking to show mercy, looking to bring bearers of justice, 
looking to do the right thing when it comes to our wealth. Not to hoard it and to keep it, but to find ways of using it, of giving it away, of making sure uh, that the choices that we make are biblically ethical and biblically moral, that they honor those who work for us, that they honor the contracts that we have signed, that we don't withhold what rightfully belongs to another person in order uh, that we might gain and that they suffer because of our gain. Even down to the, the products that we buy or where they're manufactured, the whole supply chain, as Christians, we are to be thinkers. And we need to be thinking about what God has entrusted to us. For we're just stewards of the wealth that we have. But when we use it in unjust and unjust ways, we are dishonoring and failing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to love God. So we ought to get into the habit of seeking uh, to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's what Jesus went on to say in Matthew 6. So what does your lifestyle speak about you? Has your accumulation of wealth been at the expense or exploitation of others? Are you fattening yourself for the day of slaughter? That's a picture, isn't it, that James gives us. Don't miss the warning. This is dangerous. Avoid it by not going down that road. If you've been at the receiving end of this, let's just flip over now from, from, from the wealth side to the oppressed side. If you've been at the receiving end of this, James wants to encourage you and give you hope. The Lord Almighty has heard your cry and he will take up your case. The whole of Psalm 37, then, is really a psalm for you. Uh, it's what it's calling uh, you uh, to, to consider, and to be mindful of, and to take to heart. James, then, lastly, goes into uh, what is the antithesis of pride in chapter 5 and verses 7 to 11. He says, um, chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient. I don't know if you've kind of thought that patience was the antidote to pride, but that really seems to be what James is getting at. Come now you who say, verse 13, Come now you rich, but now, brothers and sisters, you be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. In light of all of these things, be patient. Presumption is foolish. Worldliness is fatal. Words set ourselves up against the one who is able to save and to destroy. So you be patient while being a countercultural people. Uh, we, we know, friends, that this life is not all there is. We know that there's more. Uh, we don't think that this is all um, and you only get one shot at it. And so you might as well collect everything and enjoy everything and spend everything and see everything and experience everything and try everything you can. To believe this and to believe that this is all is actually to completely disagree with Jesus Christ. 
James has been lifted out of such a short-term thinking into resurrection, eternal thinking, and he is pleading with you and with me to come to our senses. What a tragedy to live our midst of a life as though this was all that there is. Rather, he says, wait for the Lord's coming. Be patient and firm and steadfast and enduring and fixed and intense and resolute and relentless while you wait for the Lord. And so he gives us a couple of pictures. He talks firstly about the farmer. He says, now be patient, um, wait for the farmer. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives uh, the earth early and the late rains. He says, like a farmer who knows that it's not instantaneous, he has to work hard and he has to wait, wait for the reward at the end. If we don't have a proper estimate of now and the future, we are going to fall into sin and idolatry, or worse than that, grumbling. So you be patient, verse 8, the second time. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says it twice in 7 and 8. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient Establish your hearts. One of the dangers is that you'll grumble against one another. When we feel the pressure, we vent against our close family or our friends or our Christian community. And James says, think big. Pain-free living in the present life is like fake news. It's part of a fake gospel. The long-term perspective is the one that we need. So be patient. Trust the Lord. Remember the Lord and know that the Lord remembers you, that his steadfast love never ceases. Uh, great is his faithfulness towards us. Now, it's not going to be easy, and no one ever said that it would. If they did, it wasn't true. The prophets waited. Uh, they never saw it. So here's an example of suffering. The prophets, they spoke in the name of the Lord, but they never saw, saw him. But we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of their steadfastness. You've also heard of the steadfastness of another guy named Job. Job suffered. And at the end of that suffering, even though it was difficult, even though he struggled through it in so many different ways, and he did, his was a struggle. Yet he struggled through it and he remained faithful. And at the end, he was wonderfully rewarded. Why? Because he kept the faith. Job shows us that we too will be rewarded if we remember the Lord, trust the Lord, and are patient, steadfast, immovable. For Job, the flame of faith was never extinguished. Friends, may that flame of faith never be extinguished in our hearts. Let me conclude by saying this. As our hearts are affected, our will will move to engage. So what is your will engaging in? When you look at your words and think about them, when you consider your plans and the way that you make them, when you take a look at your wealth and the way that you are acquiring it and employing it and using it. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 we read, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Jesus humbled himself when he came into this world as a human being, and he did not retaliate or make threats. 
Rather, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The short term might have its challenges, but the long term will be great and glorious. And the timeline that the Bible sets out could not be clearer. First the cross, and then the crown. First the hard work of the farmer, patient, steadfast, and immovable, and only then the harvest. Friends, you cannot have everything in this world now. Don't believe the lie. But you can have it at the harvests, for there the Lord is keeping it for you in a place where it cannot be lost or stolen or destroyed. But when he comes, will he find faith in the world? Will he find faith in your heart? This is what he's looking for. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When the Lord comes, when the Lord looks deeply into your heart, is that what he sees? One who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word.